So tonight, um, I'm a little bit like to follow up on what I taught last week and a week, uh, one of the weeks before, which is about skillfulness in practice. And skillfulness is a very common term in Buddhism, an important term in our practice, is how to be skillful, how to practice skillfully. And, um, uh, and then what happens, what skillfulness looks like at different um, phases of practice or stages of practice. Because it's different, life is different, practice is different when you're a beginner. Like it's one kind of practice. So there's certain things that are really skillful when you're a beginner. Like actually learning how to be mindful of the body and breath is considered very skillful when you begin meditation. Um, at other times in practice, like after you've practiced for three or five years and you're not just a beginner, there are other skills that are important that become more important sometimes. And it might not even take three or five years, but it might become important how you speak and how speech becomes a form of practice so that right speech or mindful speech becomes an important part of your practice. Or at some point in practice, work is very important. And it's not like you don't work before practice, but at a certain point the question comes, oh, how does work become part of practice? And really the bigger question that I'm pointing at is an overall question, which is how does all of life become part of practice? How does all of life become a mindfulness practice or awakening practice or an expression of awakening? Um, and so for a number of weeks, a few weeks, I talked about skillfulness and the Buddha's teachings about being skillful and being able to recognize when we're skillful and when we're not skillful, not as a way to judge ourselves or feel bad, but it's a way to start saying, oh, what do I need to work on? What's helpful to work on? What would make me, what, what creates skillfulness so that awakening happens? Or what creates skillfulness so that awakening deepens or becomes more mature or more complete or begins to fill all of life? So that it's not just, well, it's a nice thing I do, you know, once a week or once a month and it's kind of cool or it's, you know, fun. But actually it has, it's pointing to the, um, the more profound or the deeper possibility of meditation practice, of what the Buddha pointed at, which is awakening and living that awakening. And so we talked about some about being skillful when one's a beginner or one's been practicing for a few years and more mature in practice. The last time uh, I talked about um, skillfulness a little bit in relation to selflessness and emptiness, two important understandings in Buddhism and how those understandings um, uh, deepen in practice and how deepening of practice will bring more understanding of those kind of uh, realities that, you know, we all have a self. It doesn't mean you have to get rid of anything or get, destroy yourself or destroy anything. But it also begins to see the self as a relative construct and it not the essence of who and what we are, but one of the forms that 
humans take or use in human life. And we also looked at uh, the relationship a little bit between emptiness and love, that when we're empty of self, that love is one of the natural expressions that can happen, that compassion is one of the natural expressions of selflessness. It's not like, oh, I have to be compassionate, I have to do something. It's the the true heart begins to illuminate itself, reveal itself, and radiate um, uh, uh, compassion, radiate love, radiate kindness or goodness. So we were talking about skillfulness in a number of ways, and there wasn't a lot of time for you all to talk. I wanted to hear a little more from you about what's skillful in your practice. What's unskillful? What have you learned about skillfulness? What have you learned about unskillfulness? What do you need to know? What don't you know? What do you feel like, oh, I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand. How could I practice more skillfully in this area, in at work or at school or with my partner or with people, you know, strangers on the bus, or how could I practice more skillfully when I only have um, 15 minutes a day to meditate, or how can I practice more skillfully, I have two hours a day, what would be skillful way to use that kind of time for practice, or if you go to retreats, how skillful has that been, has that been helpful, has that been illuminating? There are a number of people here who just, how many people here just came off the one month retreat? I know at least three people are here. Yeah, so so there's a, one, a retreat like that teaches you a tremendous amount about how to be skillful in a deeper retreat setting. Because you may not know how to do it at first, but by doing it, you learn how to do it. You make mistakes, you learn what's skillful or unskillful what deepens practice, or or what um, takes you away from the deepening of practice. And and so there are, I'll just say, a couple more framework pieces. Part of the reason I wanted to talk about selflessness and talked about it for a few weeks was because, and most of you know this, but some of you may not know, I was gone for four four months, four and a half months, five months, I can't remember exactly how long I had a serious accident and it took me a while to get back to work. And um, so there was other teachers here, Nushka was here most of the time, but there are also other teachers who substituted. And if you start to hear from a lot of teachers, you will hear different ways to be skillful. And so it's one of the interesting questions about how to use different teachings or different perspectives on the teaching in a skillful way. And so it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about skillfulness because I've had many teachers actually in my life and they've all been good, some better than others, some I liked better than others, but there was always something to learn. And when I was able to to understand how to use a good teaching skillfully, very helpful in the deepening of practice. And the other reason why I wanted to talk about it was because it's one of the beautiful parts of Buddhism. 
is that skillfulness is encouraged. That each person, each person here is encouraged to start to think of themselves as the master of their practice. That doesn't mean you are the master of your practice, but it's important to start to think that way or see yourself that way so you start to engage in practice in a very full way. So you start to master some of the practice. So you start to learn about how to deepen, how to develop, how to mature as a as a meditator and as a Dharma student. And um, and that takes your engagement. And everybody here knows to be skillful in whatever you want to do. It could be in swimming or bike riding or it could be in card playing or it could be in painting or dancing or it could be in, you know, cooking. You have to you have to involve yourself. You have to give yourself to the activity and learn from it and use your intelligence to deepen that practice. I mean even cooking, you can have all the recipe but, you know, somebody who doesn't know how to cook can take the recipe and it still tastes like crap. Mm-hmm. And somebody who knows how to cook can just take what ingredients they have and be very skillful in creating something good. And so part of what the Dharma asks of us is to begin to mature as a Dharma practitioner. And that, practi- that maturity is encouraged through the understanding and the use and the recognition of your own skillfulness and your own capacity, your own intelligence, your own creativity, and your own capacity to become more and more skillful as a Dharma student, as a practitioner, and as somebody who can awaken, who can be free. So that's so, so now I want to hear from you all. What, wh- how are you skillful? How aren't you skillful? Or what pieces of practice would be important to talk, to talk about in terms of this question of skillfulness or unskillfulness? And, and watch, here's the really good thing, if nobody talks, Watch which watch how you practice with it. And of course, and this is a little aside, but it's part of this, which is if nobody talks after a while, I just start calling on some people. <laughs> You could stand up, say your name, slowly, loud. Thank you. Um, my name is Anne, and I was I felt um, very inspired after last week. I don't know the week before, but um, really seems very useful what the instructions that you gave during the presentation about um, states arising and passing away, and I was really noticing the variety of things that came and went, um, and I also, it felt a lot more like 
learning to ride a bicycle or learning a, a skill on a bicycle than it did any kind of thinking, um, reasoning process. Great. Um, and I just recently learning how to ride down a ramp. They put in a new ramp at where I work. And I would do it and I would bump into the side and I just kept, and then one day I could do it. You ride it on a bicycle? Down the yeah, down the okay. So, um, and then all of a sudden I could do it and it sort of felt a little bit like that where it's, it's kind of like either clicked or settled yeah, or yeah. some sensation like that and it's very different than what I used to try and act. Great. So, so part of what I'm saying is the teaching that I gave a little bit of teaching of being aware of the of beginning, middle, and end of experience. And the experience could be a sensation, could be a sound, could be a feeling, could be emotion, could be thought and thinking. And one of the great ways to practice um, and be really practicing a little bit from the strength of impermanence is to see how everything is arising and passing. And that all of our experience is arising and passing. And it, it is a little bit like riding a bike to start to get on the mindfulness cycle, bicycle, get on the mind, because you start to see reality displaying itself or revealing itself, not as a fixed stale, stiff, dead thing, but actually it's something that's changing, that's alive, and that we can't hold on to even. And so it starts the mindfulness practice when we're away, when, we, when we're aware in that way, and when we start to um, get a little momentum on our wheels, we start to see something about the nature of reality. That reality is not a fixed, static reality. That reality is a flowing or effervescent or impermanent reality. And that our ideas about it, our beliefs that it's static or we're going to keep it or it's going to stay fixed or we're going to stay is actually not the truth of reality. And it's often challenging when we start to see that truth but it's also liberating to start to see that. Why is it liberating? Because we're starting to be aware of the way things are, the way reality is. And we're not trying to hold it or grab it or contain it or control it. We're not trying to push it away. We're not trying to deny it. We're actually trying to see what it's like to be reality, mindful of reality. And that can be very liberating, very freeing, and very beautiful. And it's something we'll all learn about. Everybody here, if you stay mindful, if you learn how to be mindful well enough, at some point, you will definitely see the truth of impermanence. Because everybody here is going to die. And that's not a bad thing. That is a normal part of human life. Every flower that blooms is going to die. 
Every plant that grows is going to die. Every animal that's born is going to die. Every one of us. This is part of human life. And it may not be, well, let's see what happens when that happens. Let's learn how to be awake because that might not be a bad thing. We tend to think that's bad or that's horrible or that's, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it isn't though. Let's not assume we know a reality we don't know. Let's see if we can be mindful or wake up enough so that we can start to see what reality is as reality shows itself to us. Go ahead, Sam. You reminded me that there is an aspect of it that was, um, that unknowing, it, it felt exciting in uh-huh. a way that wasn't like an explicit thought, but there was kind of a tone of like, what's going to happen next, that I hadn't really experienced very much of before, but working, you know, to, to draw a couple of weeks um, from these parts of the direction. So the direction pointing and a little bit in a certain kind of dynamic excitement. And that can really happen. It can be quite illuminating. It can be exciting. It can be thrilling. It, to start to see, oh, what is really happening if what's happening is not my thoughts or ideas about what's happening. What is being a human being if my preconceptions, if my assumptions, if, if my habitual way of thinking about reality may not be the truth of what reality is? Who am I? What am I? If my ideas about myself or what's happened to me, if that's not the defining factor about what it is to be a human being, what is this thing that the Buddha talked about as waking up or awakeness or luminosity? And it's one of the beautiful things about being a practitioner over a period of time is for that question to continue to arise. Even as you wake up or are illuminated to some extent, and then to see, oh yeah, there's more. There's more to learn. There's more here. There's more assumptions I have. There's more beliefs I have. There's more ways of thinking that are not exactly what reality is. That reality keeps showing us its immediacy. Because that's one of the key pieces of reality. It's immediate. It's not in the past. It's not in the future. What it is to be a human being is right here, is right now, and we're so untrained at paying attention to this immediacy in a deep way. But it's possible, and mindfulness is beautiful, beautiful way to begin to orient towards here and now. Please, and if you can stand your name and... Don't, don't be, you can be shy, but just be mindful of that. That's okay. Um, I'm 
Great question. Yeah, so how do you how do you become more skillful when you live in a dominant culture that's not particularly valuing obviously valuing mindfulness or supporting that skillfulness, etc. etc. That's our question. That's not just your question, that's our question. And it's one of the interesting uh, uh, uh one of the interesting experiences for me is watching mindfulness grow over the last 25 years in this, you know, not dominant culture and the culture people. When I first went on retreat, people just thought it was crazy. Or people thought it was, you know, oh, you're an oddball. And I mean, I'm a, I am an oddball, but I'm not such a mindfulness. You know, I'm an oddball anyway. But the mindfulness. And, and really, it's been so interesting to watch mindfulness deepen in this culture, and it has, and will, con- and it's continuing to. And I believe, from what I can see, will continue to deepen within the culture because it speaks to something essentially human and important to humans. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a Buddhist to be mindful, or you don't have to shave your head or wear robes. Or, I mean, you can do all that, and that's fine if you're called in that way. But it's very interesting to see that uh, mindfulness, even in a culture that has uh, not valued it or negated it or undervalued it, is having a huge impact on the culture. And it's slow, but it's steady. And when I watch the sitting group growing, like this group grew over years and years, or watching the younger teachers and the newer sitting groups that are happening, and how quickly things are happening now, or the, the things that are happening on college campuses, or the things that are happening in, uh, like, Spirit Rock, which I know a little bit about, um, watching the, the um, depths of practice, the variety of practice, the, um, uh, the difficulty of Spirit Rock is how to fill all the needs that are being asked to be filled. For me, that's all good. That's all good news. Um, and then your question, though, is still a valid and important question. So first I want to say, Things are much better than they were, and I think they're going in that direction in terms of mindfulness in this culture. And yet, it's still true. There is a way that mindfulness is undervalued, spirituality is often denigrated, or, uh, or having a contemplative heart is unvalued, things like that. Um, I believe, and it's been my experience, if you do your practice, if you do your practice, you will change the world. You will change this culture. You will change the dominant culture. And I don't mean you'll change it making it to some idea of what you want. I mean, your presence, your awakeness, your sensitivity, your compassion, your kindness will have a 
a radiant impact to your friends, to your family, to the people you work with, to people you don't know but you meet in some way on a bus or at a party or this, you will have an impact because of the practice of mindfulness and because of the luminosity of the Dharma. And so I have a lot of trust or faith at this point. I'm not saying you should have the trust and faith, but I'm asking, really I want to encourage you to pay attention to what happens to you if you practice and pay attention to how people may be impacted along the way, not even trying to impact them, not trying to, you know, wake up anybody or make them see, you know, how great Buddhism is or anything like that, because, you know, I mean, that can be an okay thing, but it's, you don't have to do anything. If you become, if you wake up, you'll have a huge impact on this culture, huge impact, and good impact. And, and in ways I don't even know how you will impact the culture, really. Because, you know, Buddha woke up in a certain way and did a whole thing, and we're still impacted by that. How, how did that happen? How does that happen over, you know, 2,500 years or however many years it's been? Or if you look at somebody more current who, like, um, and one of the things since my accident, my memory's not so good, but Aung San Suu Kyi, right, who's a Burmese woman, serious practitioner, and has been under like house arrest for I don't know how many years, and is now free, and now free to run for office in Burma. And she's had a huge impact on Burma, Burmese culture, her people, and the world by her practice. So I have a lot, I've gotten, right, okay, you, you get the idea of what I'm pointing at. So, yeah, and, and then also you can, here's one more piece about seeing the dominant culture and the limitations of the dominant culture around Buddhism or around waking up or around mindfulness, around compassion. Um, that's all part of practice. I'm, I'm serious. The dukkha, you know the word dukkha, right? The dukkha, which means suffering. The suffering of the dominant culture is part of our practice. It's not something we're going to fix. It's something we want to pay attention to and see in what way is it skillful to respond. It's skillful to say something. Is it skillful to practice more? Is it skillful to be quiet sometimes? Because all of those things could be skillful depending on the moment and the situation. And it's, it's a great question because, uh, I mean, for many reasons, because it's true what you're asking about and it has an impact on us, but also because and I'll just say for me personally, uh, the Dharma, and for my little practice of it for 25 years or so, uh, uh, 
sometimes seems to be like a harbinger of a possibility for a whole different world. And by different, I don't mean we get rid of humanness or human beings, but that human beings can learn to wake up and to love and be kind and compassionate and caring and sensitive and and uh, a whole society like that it could be wow could be really interesting and it seems like it's possible I don't know that that's going to happen I am not going to guarantee that but <laughs> believe me I know enough about <laughs> reality not to guarantee almost anything except that you will die I'll guarantee that <laughs> you know, I, even that I could be wrong about it at a certain level but, but there does seem the, you know the impact of dharma and dharma teaching and dharma practice really beautiful really beautiful that's, that's my experience and so the possibility of what could happen as we all wake up who knows so thank you you, you got to be a little louder Stacy, hi Stacy. I find that I can really um, think around like what is happening, and something that you said when we first came back has really helped me relax a lot. Which is, I think you just kept repeating it like consciousness is inherently good. Right. Uh, some, is that, right. So, so here, let, let me start first with the, you know, the being the Buddhist teacher about your, your uh, dilemma here, which is you're pointing to a certain kind of unskillfulness, which is the tightening you talked about around being skillful. Uh, and just to remind everybody, and if you weren't here, when I talked about skillfulness, I said it a number of times, I said a little tonight, it's not about having to be right. It's not about having to be good. It's really about learning about yourself and your capacities and the, and the possibility of Dharma practice. So it's more, a little more, I think a little more adventurous like you can make mistakes lots of them and believe me I have you can make lots of mistakes you can do a lot of fucked up things in the Dharma you know in your meditation but you can learn from them and that's beautiful because that's reality reality is nobody knows how to do it everybody's learning we have the possibility and the more we're here the more we're awake the more we're intelligent the more our heart is, is awake 
the more we can see clearly, the more possibility we have for waking up and responding and growing and developing and maturing in a dharmic way. So I just want to say, you're still looking at the same question of skillful and unskillfulness. It's not so skillful to get tight around being skillful and unskillful. But it's normal, right? So that's important. So you can, you can either hear it's not so skillful as, oh, I'm doing it wrong or bad. Or you could, you could hear I'm not so skillful as, oh, great. There's a skillful way to do this. Here's what I know so far. It's not so helpful to get so tight. Relaxation. Let me try that. And you clearly try that and you see something about that. Great. So you could do a whole year of practice where all you do is practice being relaxed as part of your meditation. And you'll see it won't work. (laughs) It, It won't work. But it will show you all the things that tighten you or contract you or you react to or you have some kind of resistance to. And that's not bad. That's great. Because then you're learning about your heart and mind. And, and you're learning about it from a place of dharma, not from a place of judgment. And so then you can see, and and this is one of the possibilities of the Dharma. You can, I I know I shouldn't say it this way, but I'm going to. You can be an asshole and be mindful of it. And you can wake up by being mindful of your crappiness. (laughs) Your asshole. Or your, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever is the worst thing you could do. You know, don't do it. I don't mean do it, but you know, in your mind. In your mind. And so, it's one of the beauties of meditation practice is you don't have to be a perfect meditator, and you won't be. You can't be. What you can do is be mindful of what's skillful and what's unskillful. What's helpful and what's unhelpful. What liberates the heart and mind, and what obscures liberation. And that, that is a wonderful way to practice. And, you know, I mean, I could point a little more just classically, if you read the Buddha's history in a real way, he did a bunch of practice before he discovered Buddhism. He tried a lot of things, and he did them pretty well, and they didn't work, and he was unhappy He was unhappy, and his unhappiness led him to freedom. And so it's not bad to not be satisfied at some points, or to be unhappy at some point, especially once we start to have a dharmic perspective, because that perspective, which is generally a more relaxed perspective, or the perspective of awareness, which is not yes or no, right or wrong, good or bad, but is knowing. And that knowing is free already. And then, anything can happen. Mindfulness is a beautiful, beautiful practice pointing us at something innate. In What did I say? Consciousness was good? Yeah. 
It is. I mean, it's amazing consciousness. And it can be come distorted or, or influenced by ignorance. It's a very Buddhist way to say it. Um, but when it's not, it just can be luminous and radiant and beautiful and, and teach us so much. And everybody will have a chance to learn. This is why I've got a little bit of a death thing. Not too much, I'm sorry. But the, one of the skillful teachings is Maranasati or mindfulness of death. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it's important to say something about it is because everybody here is going to have a, a good opportunity to practice dying. We're all going to die. That's just normal. And that may teach us something way more than we know when we see what, what that's like, when our identification with human form is not so bound. And I'm not saying get rid of your identification. Don't get rid of that. But it's not the, it's not the end of the story. It's an, actually a beautiful part of what's here is this Look at, look at you all. Look around. Everybody look around. This is humanness. We're, we're just being humans together. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> I think. <laughs> you know, not all the time. I don't think it all the time. But I think it, I think it a lot. And, 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 uh, but it's not the end of the story for us as human beings. Consciousness is it's pretty amazing. Hi, my name's Beth. Hi, Beth. And um, for the last month, I've started a, a, a new yoga practice. I am an ad practitioner, but for the last month, I've been doing it in the morning, first thing. You've been doing new yoga first thing in the morning. Yeah. Great. And, um, and it's, it's, it's been really amazing. Grounded my body, meditative, positive, positive. On the other side of the coin, yeah. um, my inner critic is just is raging. Um, who do you think you are? You're not a morning person. Wait, wait, wait. It's racing. What, what's it saying? My, my inner critic. Yeah, yeah, I got that. Your inner critic. Yeah, who do you think you are? You know, you're, you're not athletic enough. You're not. Uh-huh. So, so your inner critic is criticizing you for doing yoga in the morning, which you love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that happens. So, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working with it. I'm, you know, that's not true, and that's just, and what I've really gotten to is that part of this is, is um, it's like an old friend almost. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, your inner critic's like an old friend. And I'm, and that's very confusing to me. Uh-huh. That's very confusing to Beth. No, you want some skillful means? Yes. <laughs> so, do you have other friends like this too? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you know, there's always, always the archetype, right? <laughs> your ex-husband. Well, you're not having so much to do with your ex-husband. Your mother, I don't know how much you're having to do with her, but 
It's great that you're seeing how the mind incalculates. Is that the right word? I don't even know the Inculcate? Inculcates, thank you. Inculcates an, a perspective and then doesn't stop talking it. And so the inner critic is a very... Anybody else have an inner critic? <laughs> right? Like this is... Everybody here does, believe me. And if, and if you start to become awake, one of the things you start to see are the stories we're telling ourselves about reality, about who ourselves. You were good, we're bad, we shouldn't be doing this yoga in the morning because, you know, God knows why, you know. But some logic, it sound very logical or rational or really right to talk. So, the question in terms of skillfulness is how do you practice with it? How do you pay attention to it? And it means paying attention, because if you don't pay attention, it'll have an impact. And if you do pay attention, you can begin to see that you may be believing the inner critic in whatever the hell it says. You know, I mean, and everybody here, this happens for everybody. It happens in work, it happens in relationships, it happens in anything we try to learn, you know, we're hard on ourselves or we're critical of ourselves, or we tell ourselves that we're great when we don't, we're great even when we don't even know what we're doing, you know. I mean, it can go every which way. So, one of the things that the Dharma offers is the perspective of clear seeing, like, oh, see, oh, this is an idea and a perspective. It's not necessarily the truth. And if it's not the truth, what do you want to do with it? You could believe it if you want, but you don't have to. It's like if somebody were coming up from behind and saying all these things with you, most of you say, get out of here, shut up. Why don't you go shop over there, you know, or say what you have to say to somebody else. Or you just, you know, hit them once, or whatever you need to do. And so there, there are other skillful means you can use with the inner critic, but that all starts with being aware of the phenomena of this perspective that's being believed. And then see what happens if you don't believe it. And that's, that's radical because our identity is partly shaped by our critic and by our harshness, our hardness about ourselves. Now, of course, I'm not saying, oh, you can do anything you want to do. Actually, you can do anything you want to do, but it doesn't mean some things are not unskillful and some things are skillful, because some things are unskillful. So, you know, Anyhow, is that helpful so far? Yeah, that give you. And so, and then the other way you can do it is also a positive way to practice with it, which is for one week, I'm going to do my yoga and not criticize myself for doing it, and see what that's like, because that may be uncomfortable. That may it's like 
there's a way that if our identity is used to criticism and the criticism makes us feel more here, we're not just doing it because we're doing something wrong. We're trying to, I don't know the right word, assuage or assure our identity. And that's very common. And the Dharma will challenge that. Because our identity is a relative identity. It has an import. It has a beauty. It's great to have an identity. It's not the end of the story. There's something more fundamental than our identity. And, and when we discover what's fundamental, when we discover the Dharma, then that Dharma can infuse our identity. And that's a beautiful combination. Okay? That's a little bit helpful? Good. So, I think maybe we'll stop here tonight. Let's sit for a minute or two and then there'll be a couple left things to say. You could sit or stand or whatever you would like. But just settle into your body. Settle into what's here. You may be happy or sad or bored or excited or inspired or despired. I don't know what the opposite is. Uninspired. That's all okay. Just be mindful of whatever is true, whatever is here. And notice how we have this capacity of consciousness to be awake to the changing reality of human life, even as it's revealing itself, showing itself right now in this moment. thoughts or thinking, be aware of the process of thought or thinking. If there's feelings or moods, be a, a, aware of the, the uh, uh, energy of that, of the affect of that. If there is sensations, tired or aching, be aware of the sensations of the body. There are sounds, my voice, cars, be aware of the sounds and silence. If there's a sense of openness, spaciousness, awakeness, be aware of consciousness as it's awake or spacious or open. And if you don't know what's happening, be aware of not knowing. reflect, we'll offer uh, blessings of our time together, of our practice. May it be for the benefit of all. May it be for the benefit of ourselves and for each other. 
that really we have benefit all beings, human beings, non-human beings, in this realm, in every realm. May all beings awaken. May all beings be free. May all beings discover the truth of reality. May all beings be liberated.